Alright, when was the last time that you felt fundamentally conflicted? I mean, you just thought to yourself, this is a no-win situation. If this happens, this part of me loses. If this happens, this part of me loses. And you start to play this game of tug-of-war with yourself. Have you ever been so fundamentally conflicted that you didn't know what to do next? If you were to look at the definition of conflicted, uh, it's having or showing confused and mutually inconsistent feelings. See what it's saying there? You're, you're so confused that these feelings you're having about this are completely inconsistent. That's what it means to be conflicted. And sometimes in life we get very conflicted. Because sometimes a, a certain part of us feels one way about a certain situation. But then an equally part side of us feels a completely different way about that same certain thing. And this doesn't happen to me often. Maybe it doesn't happen to you often. But when it does happen to me, I, I feel crippled. Like I can't make my mind up or like, like I can't even function sometimes. I can't figure out what I will do. And it's this epic battle of tug of war. Which side of myself is going to conquer the other side of myself? Which side is going to triumph over the other? Perhaps a silly example of this. I've got some, some buddies over here. We're, we're, we're in a fantasy football league, okay? No money involved. It's just an app, a way for us to argue, a way for us to get at each other, right? Kyle is in fourth place out of ten with the least amount of points. Are you kidding me, right? Everybody in the league's like, you know, what, what's going on? Fantasy football is this thing where you, ha you, you select all of these different players in the National Football League, and, and because of their stats and what they accomplish throughout the week, you get a certain amount of points. But the thing about fantasy football is it's in the National Football League, and I come from a family and come from a place that basically only cares about college football. Okay, so when you're watching college football, you start to, to, to build alliances, you start to build relationship with some of these players, you, at least you think so in your mind. Then they go on to play in the NFL. They go on to be on your fantasy football team. Let me tell you this. You want to know conflicting? There is nothing more conflicting than for an Alabama fan to start rooting for an Auburn player in the NFL, in fantasy football, but that's what fantasy football does. You start to root for these guys that you couldn't stand just a couple years ago, and you hope that they do good all of a sudden. In fact, you start to root for certain things in the middle of a game that make no sense. For instance, I hope that this quarterback has the game of his life, but that he doesn't throw it once to his best receiver because his best receiver is on the other guy's team. You feel this Maybe that's a silly example, okay? Here's a real-life example of being conflicted. You ever buy a car, and you go to get that car, and you go to the dealership, and you have the choice between buying a car that has two rows of seating, but an enormous trunk, 
Or you can buy a car that has three rows of seating and has a tiny trunk. How conflicted are you? Because if you get this one car, you're going to have all the room for all of the junk you could possibly imagine, right? But if you get this other car, you're able to carry more people and have more children and, have, and, and be able to do way more with this car, right? And sure enough, you get so conflicted, you don't know which end or which one to choose. But the truth is, regardless of which one you choose, regardless of which vehicle you're going to choose, it's likely that within a year you're going to wish you had chosen the other one, right? That's what it means to be conflicted. That's what it means to not know what to do next. So tonight, up front, I'm just going to tell you that for some of us, for some of you tonight, we are going to be talking about something that may make you conflicted. We're going to be talking about something and discussing something that is inherently conflicting for us tonight. Because for us tonight, we have been conditioned, we have been taught to feel this way about what we're going to be talking about. But in actuality, tonight, we're going to be looking at it from this perspective. And so from time to time, we're going to be playing tug of war with ourselves. And we're going to be feeling conflicted about our discussion tonight. In fact, uh, the initial reaction as we start to talk about it, I, I assume maybe even visceral for some of us tonight to go against everything that we may have built up and have in our mind about what we're going to be talking about. But hopefully by the end of our discussion tonight, by the end of our time tonight, I hope part of us walks away with a greater appreciation than maybe we had ever imagined for this subject. But tonight, we're going to be asking the question, where would the restoration be without the Reformation? Where would the restoration movement be if it had not been for the Reformation movement? Where would the movement that, that we have pride and we look back with such joy and, and think about where would our movement be without the Reformation movement? But before we get into answering that question tonight, let's remember where we ha have come from thus far in our study. In phase one of our study, we started that introduction to our movement by looking at the biblical basis for restoration. We went to God's Word and we saw how time and time again, God expects restoration when things get off the rail. And we talked about how the destination for our restoration is nothing short of the church that God intended. The church that God intended for us to be is what we find in Ephesians 5 and verse 27, right? But Paul says that the, he might present her to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, having no such blemishes. That's what God intended for his church. And then we talked our next week about not departing to the right or departing to the left, not adding, not taking away, not loosening, not binding, where God has not loosened and God has not bound. And we started last week with phase two of our study, or not last week, a couple weeks ago, we started uh, phase two of our study talking about 
the, the foundation of our movement, the foundation of our movement is way before, many, many years before our movement even began. So we had to go back all the way to the beginning where things really went off the rails. And it took us all the way back to ancient times. And we saw how Christianity became the, the not only an accepted religion, it became the only acceptable religion in Rome because of the Edict of Thessalonica in the year 380. And so we saw that once that decision was made, Rome took over Christianity. Rome conquered Christianity in a way that they could do whatever they wanted to do. And so last week, our study continued this thought of what what happens, what, what is the fallout of a thousand years of Rome having their hands on the church? What is the fallout of 100 years of Rome, uh, a thousand, excuse me, a thousand years of, of Rome doing whatever they wanted to to Christianity? What is the fallout of a thousand years of Rome going to the right and a thousand years of Rome going to the left? What's the fallout going to be of of them adding and taking away and and loosening and binding wherever they wanted to? What is the fallout of a thousand years of God's people not having accessibility to the Word of God? And that's what we talked about last week. We talked about this man comes along named John Wycliffe. He has a desire within him to translate the Bible into English, and that's what he does. He devotes his entire life to translating the Latin Vulgate into English, and that was where we saw that first domino fall when it comes to our study of the Restoration Movement. The first domino that had to fall was what John Wycliffe did. He had to make the average person have accessibility to the words of God. And this is what happened to him because of it. Forty years after he was dead and gone, the Roman government hated this man so much that they dug him up and burned him anyway. That is what happened. That is the culture and the society and, and the oppression that we're talking about when it comes to the Roman Catholic Church in the 13 and 1400s. But as we know, John Wycliffe was successful ultimately in bringing translation that we have tonight because his movement spread like wildfire throughout all of Europe. We talked about how desperate the Catholic Church was to do such a thing like this. So in in our talks, we talked about how with the invention of the printing press, William Tyndale was able to continue what John Wycliffe had done with his life and continued and completed the English translation. And that was what was able to make everyone around the world in that time in Europe, that was what was able to make them see God's Word in full color for the first time in their life. And now everyone, everyone who, who desires to know the truth can go to God's word for themselves and see it for what it truly is. 
And so what was once this spiritually destitute people, this spiritually illiterate world, can now put these glasses on and see the truth for the first time. And so we ended last week asking the question, but now that everyone can read for themselves, what's the fallout of that? What's going to happen now that everyone can can go to God's Word and see the truth for themselves? Tonight, our discussion leads us to the next domino that had to fall in order to bring us to our movement. You see, because Wycliffe's influence spread all through Europe, like I said, because, because of him, everyone wanted to translate the Bible into their language. And so what we're going to see is Wycliffe and Tyndale and these guys, they translated into English, so all the people in Germany are going to say to themselves, we want our, our language represented in the Bible. So we're going to translate the Bible into German. And then you start to see people in France translating the Bible into French. And you start to see that influence all throughout Europe. And as the printing press continues to make an impact in the world, you're going to start seeing different thoughts and different periodicals and, and different articles being sent out all over the, 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 the Europe, putting out more and more of these thoughts. And as more and more people got these thoughts, more and more people were able to see how far to the right they had gone how far to the left they had gone, how they had added, how they have taken away, how they have loosened, how they have bound, and they start to realize just how off Christianity had gotten from the original. More and more people started to question everything. And when people questioned everything, for reformation the reformation movement was born the reformation movement is often taught in public schools I remember learning about the reformation movement in world history class so I'm pretty sure most of us tonight have a working knowledge of the reformation movement we, we know some of the key players and we know uh, some of the, the, the facts about the reformation movement uh, so I'm not going to act like you don't have a knowledge of that tonight. But the question I have tonight is, what is the connection between the Reformation movement and the Restoration movement? Can these movements coexist? Can, can, can one of them depend on the other? Are they completely mutually exclusive? Should they be estranged from one another? Or do they belong in the same conversation? Or is it somewhere in between all of them? You know, growing up in the Church of Christ, maybe you're like me, I remember hearing about the Reformation movement in an incredibly negative lens. An incredibly negative lens that, that, that taught me, well, we can't get anything from those guys. These guys were heretics. These guys set what turned into motion all the denominations we see today. So when I grew up, I was thinking about the Reformation movement and the, the, the Reformation leaders like Martin Luther and John Calvin. My initial reaction was incredibly negative. 
and we know why this is. Like I said, Luther is known as this main figure that, that started the Protestant faith, that, that started all the denominations that we see today. Maybe we have the visceral reaction to uh, people like John Calvin who, who started Calvinism and, and started talking about total depravity and predestination and, and all of these different things that we see today. And we automatically, when we hear those names, we want to burn the world down. Tonight, I'm obviously not going to try to justify those people. In no way am I going to try to justify what I believe today to be heresy. It is heresy. But tonight, I want to give them a fair shake. By asking the simple question, what would our beliefs be? We were that close to that thousand years of Roman reign. What kind of beliefs and what kind of doctrine and, 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 and what kind of faith and, and what kind of knowledge of God's Word would I have if I was raised and born in that time like they were? What kind of beliefs would I hold myself to if, if I was like Luther and I was like Calvin and I was like all these other leaders we're going to talk about in a second? If I grew up right after... Roman influence over Christianity? I don't know the answer to that. But here we have these guys who have just now gotten control of the Bible in their own language. Have just now been able to break free of, of Roman Catholicism. And the question we have to ask is, what would we preach if we were there after a thousand years of religious suppression? What would we teach after a thousand years of the biblical text being kept from the common man? Tonight, I hope that each of us have a bit of humility as we go back in time and think about the Reformation movement. I hope that we have the humility to realize that without the Reformation, there would have never been a restoration. I hope we can have that humility tonight to realize that that domino had to fall before ours could ever fall. Just like we've been saying throughout the course of this class, the restoration movement did not begin with two guys in a wagon in the 1800s. It began many years before. We could say the same thing about the Reformation movement. The Reformation movement didn't begin with a guy going up to a Catholic door and hanging something on the door, the 95 Theses. It didn't start in 1517 with Martin Luther. Winds of change and calls for Reformation had been happening for years and years before Martin Luther was ever even born. The 95 Theses, or, or 95 indictments on the Catholic Church, they were not all discovered were realized by Martin Luther alone. Some of these uh, grievances and, and complaints have been bemoaned for generations. But in order to reform the Catholic Church, the thing we got to realize is it was a process. 
it was a process to reform the Catholic Church. A very long process it was. It was a process where they had to discover what was and what was not sound doctrine. You know why? Make a pun. But Rome wasn't built in a day. I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with what I'm about to relate it to. If you'll allow me, the same way Rome wasn't built in a day, Roman Catholicism wasn't built in a day. Roman Catholicism was built over, like I've been talking about, a thousand years of adding and taking away, a thousand years of drifting to the right and the left, a thousand years of loosening and binding. And so Roman Catholicism wasn't built in a day, so since the error wasn't built in a day, it was not going to ever be fixed in a day. Time was needed to reform the, the church that had become unrecognizable. And that's exactly what we see in the Reformation movement take place. And we don't have the time tonight. We got one night on the Reformation, okay? We don't have time tonight to get into every one of, of Martin Luther's beliefs and every one of his, his uh, teachings. We don't have time to get into every one of John Calvin's beliefs and all of Calvin's teachings. We don't have time to do that tonight. But if you had to sum up the Reformation movement, if you had to sum up the Reformation movement in one word, it would be protest. Protest was what the Reformation movement was built on because they protested Catholic beliefs. They protested Catholic dominance. They protested this Catholic oppression and suppression over all these many years. They, they protested Catholic traditions. And in, do so, in, in, in doing so, they were ultimately protesting the government itself because those entities had become one thing, remember? So they had no choice but to protest. Protest all of these false teachings. And that's why the movement was given the moniker Protestant Reformation. You can't spell Protestant without the word protest. Protestant Reformation. That's what we're talking about Protestant Reformation, the protest that took place against the Catholic Church. And whenever you look at the history and you really start to boil it down and, and really try to understand the, the main, finer points of the Reformation movement, it really comes down to three figures. Three figures that, that really spearheaded the movement that we see in the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And it's really three different currents by three different reformers running alongside one another. The first one of those is Huldrych Zwingli. Huldrych Zwingli. What a fun name. Hey, I know y'all got Chris, but listen, there's still time, Ian. Huldrych Zwingli, right? What a, what a name, okay? Huldrych Zwingli started out as a Catholic priest in the year 1506. But ten years into him being a priest, he had enough. Ten years into being a Catholic priest, 
he began to look solely at the Bible for doctrinal authority. Here's a quote from him. He says, In my youth I devoted myself as much to human learning as did others my age. Then in 1516 I undertook and devote myself entirely to the Scriptures. And the conflicting philosophy of theology and my schoolmen constantly presented difficulties. But eventually I came to the conclusion led thereto by the Scriptures and decided you must drop all that Learn God's will directly from His Word. Does that sound like something we would say? That's something we say all the time. The Bible is silent. The Bible speaks on it. We speak. Very similar thing happening in the year 1560. When Zwingli said, all these other people are conflicting one another. I'm done with that. I'm done with, with, with the conflicting. I want to go back to the Bible. And so he says, I, I got to drop all that. I got to drop all of that conditioning that I had learned in Catholicism. And I got to look straight at the Word of God. And so that's exactly what we see Zwingli do. Zwingli began to, to teach and he started to preach from the Scriptures alone. Instead of, of preaching uh, the prescribed lessons that were given to all the, the local priests, he started to preach straight from the book of Matthew. Imagine that. A guy preaching actually from the Bible. And this was not acceptable. Instead of preaching the Catholic dogma, he started preaching the word of God. Instead of preaching the creeds of men, he preached God's word. And Zwingli went even so far, if you look into the history, he destroyed the organs that were in his, his congregation. He had the organs destroyed and, and all of the music destroyed because he could find no precedent in the New Testament for their use. Look what he says later on in life. He says, the clear and pure light, the word of God has been dimmed confused and deluded with human principles and teachings so that all those who call themselves Christians do not know the divine will. They only have their self-invented worship, holiness, and external spiritual knowledge, which is man-made. What is he saying? He's saying the same thing we've been saying for the last couple weeks. These people don't know what God's Word says. Why? They haven't had it. For a thousand years, they haven't had access to God's Word. And so he says, everybody who calls themselves Christians has no idea what the book says. The light of the gospel was dim, he says. Zwingli was such a radical to the Roman Catholic leaders, to the Pope, to the government itself. They sent an army. They sent an army to his congregation in Zurich. all the people in the church. This is known as the Battle of Capel, if you want to look it up. The Battle of Capel is where Zwingli and all, 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 of, all of the people there in the church died. Why? Because Ulrich Zwingli had the audacity to want to go back to life. And so there's the first key figure in the Reformation movement 
Huldrych Zwingli. The next figure is one that I'm sure all of us have heard the name, I'm sure all of us know about, Martin Luther. Zwingli was in Switzerland, Martin Luther is in Germany. Martin Luther was very, you know, responsible for the German translation of the, of the Bible the same way Wycliffe was the English. Martin Luther starts off as this German monk living in a monastery. And as he continues to study the Catholic doctrine, as he continues to study in Catholicism, he starts to find a litany of issues, a litany of, of, of problems. And among all of those problems, there were, there were so many to count, right? Among all of them, he really had one glaring issue. The, the, the one glaring issue that Martin Luther couldn't get over is that the New Testament constantly affirms that through Christ we can find forgiveness, we can find mercy, we can find grace, we can find salvation, we can find justification only through Christ can we find that. So he reads that in the scriptures and he says to himself, deal with all these indulgences. You know what an indulgence is? It's when you go to the church and you give a certain amount of money so that your sins can be forgiven. Imagine that. What if you didn't have the money? Well, I guess you just don't get your sins forgiven. That's what was going on in the Catholic Church at this time, Martin Luther realized this indulgence is going to a human man and confessing sins to a human man in a box was, where, where are we getting that? And so when it came to indulgences, when it came to forgiveness of sins, he said, this isn't right. He said, this isn't right. Dowley, in the history of Christianity, he says, Luther created and sustained the German Reformation virtually single-handed. And this he achieved by an immense output of books and fearless preaching and teaching and by putting the Bible in German into the heart and minds of every man, woman, and child. Stally, this historian, goes back and he looks at Martin Luther. He says, this man carried the Reformation on his back. Why? Because of all the publications he made and because he was willing to put the Bible in the average Joe's hands talking about the last couple weeks. And so look at this quote from Martin Luther. He says unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Man, what a quote. What a powerful statement from Martin Luther. Here's this man who has been so uh, plagued by Catholicism around him that he realizes, I am only captive. I am only, I'm only dedicated to the Word of God, not the Word of men. And then we got the third figure in the Reformation movement. The third figure is John Calvin. He's in France. You've got Zwingli in Switzerland. You've got... Um, Martin Luther in Germany, now you've got John Calvin in, in France, in Geneva. You've got John Calvin, who we all have heard his name before as well. 
John Calvin grew up in France, like I said, and he, he was heavily influenced. He came a little bit later than Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli. But he was heavily influenced by, by all of, of their writings, and, and he started out just like they did in the Catholic Church as a priest, and he studied his way just out of it the same way they did. What happens? He, he realizes that this just isn't right. Calvin, he, he completely despised the idea that Catholicism had married the government. He despised the idea that the two had become one and, and that it was, it was not right. Calvin believed that the church was supreme and in no way should ever be restricted by the state. When you look at Calvin and what he taught, he came, as I said, a little bit later than Luther and Zwingli, and, and he, deferred, he, he, he differed from Zwingli and he differed from Martin Luther on some aspects. But when we look at John Calvin, I guess the main contribution we can say about him is he really recorded a lot of the thought and a lot of the beliefs and a lot of, of the events that happened in the Reformation movement. So much so that one scholar said that if there was a song about the Reformation movement, John Calvin wrote the words and Martin Luther wrote the tune and the that's the relationship between Calvin and, and Luther when we look back at the Reformation movement. So tonight, when we look at these three men and these three different movements going along the same place, the same time, you've got Switzerland, you've got France, you've got Germany, all these different thoughts are coming together. You've got these three currents, three movements ultimately having the same was that message? Scripture alone. If you had to sum up the, the Reformation movement and, and what they believed and what they were aspiring to, it was the two words, Scripture alone. If we can object to and forget about all the words of man and all the creeds of man and all the dogma of the Catholic Church and just go back to Scripture alone, alone will be just fine. Tonight when we go back and think about the Reformation movement, I think there's a lot to appreciate for the Protestants here. I think there's a lot that we can go back and appreciate because ultimately they believe the Bible to be the only authority for faith and life. By the way, although some of their followers many years later would add creeds of man and add doctrines of men, just like the Catholic Church. But here at the beginning of the Reformation, they believed that the Bible was the only authority. They also believed that someone was saved through Christ alone. They believed that Christ was the head of the church. They believed many of the things that we believe today. But I'm not in any way trying to say that they're our brethren. I'm not trying to say that, that we're, we're brothers and sisters with them. When we look at this through 21st century glasses, we're, we're able to look back and realize, you know, you really didn't go far enough here in this one aspect. Luther, you didn't go far enough on your Reformation, and, 
And over here on this other aspect, you, you really didn't go far enough. And that's only, we're only able to do that. Why? It's because we're wearing 21st century glasses. Centuries removed from this time, we're, we're able to see the mistakes and we're able to see the holes in their theology. But we're only afforded that blessing because we're centuries removed from them. Because we're centuries removed from the spiritual illiteracy that took place in that day. We're centuries removed from Catholicism dominating Christianity. We know today that, that because of these men, Luther and Calvin specifically, especially, because of these men, the, the rise to denomination after denomination would happen. Doctrine after doctrine, teaching after teaching, today we know to be contrary to God's will. we got to realize that without them starting the process and, and hitting that next domino, our movement would have never had a chance to ever happen. Because it's because Wycliffe that the Lollards continue to continue that movement we talked about last week. It's because the Lollards that the Lutherans came. It's because the Lutherans that the Calvinists came. It's because of them that the Great Awakening happening. It's because the Great Awakening that Alexander Campbell happened. They're all not mutually exclusive from one another. And someone says, Ben, you're being a little too gracious here tonight. Aren't you being a little too gracious to these guys? These guys wound up making these religions and, and these, these, these doctrines that we see as heresy today. Why couldn't they just discover the truth like I did? I'm not trying to make light of the teachings that these men espoused. I'm not trying to let them off the hook. Because some of their teachings would go on to be erroneous. So erroneous that, that it was just as to the right and just as to the left as the Roman Catholic Church. Tonight I want to get off my 21st century high horse. And realize instead of pointing the finger at them saying, how dare you not have the knowledge and the understanding that I have today in 2022. Instead of doing that, I hope that we can point the finger at ourselves. And thank God that the Reformation didn't depend on me. That I find myself on the other side of the Reformation and that it did not depend on me. And thank God that I live centuries away from the influence of the Roman Catholic Church on the world when it comes to having a grasp on Christianity. Tonight as we try to bring this lesson home, as we try to make it make sense, as we try to make it matter to me, to, to Ben Hogan and in 2022, as we try to make it make sense, let me ask this question. What, what, what is your attitude when it comes to the people in your life that have been misled? You see, because you know we all have people in every one of our lives, each of us have people in our lives 
Each of us have people in our lives that have been misled and are hopelessly confused and manipulated by the people that they should be able to depend on the most. Some of the most loving, kind, and gracious, and sincere people you'll ever meet are also sincerely wrong. And it's because they have been misled and manipulated into believing things that are not found in the Scripture. What's our attitude with them? What's your attitude with these people in your life that have been misled? What is your attitude towards these people that are hopelessly manipulated by the people they should trust most in your life? Because over here we see this person that, that we care about. He's over here and he's completely, hopelessly misled by the people teaching him. His entire life, his parents taught him wrong, his preacher taught him wrong, his friends taught him wrong, everybody taught him wrong, and here he is, how do I treat him? How do I treat the person that has been misled when I've had the truth? How do I react towards them? How do I, how do I talk to them? They don't know any better because they haven't been taught any better. You know what my job is? You know what my job is? You know what your job is tonight? It's to go to that person and meet them where they are and help bring them where they need to be. Now, do we go over here to this person and yank them up and grab them and throw them where he needs to be? I hope not. Do we meet them where they are and help bring them patiently to where they need to be and have the knowledge that they need to have? I think some of us have the wrong attitude with that guy over there. Some of us look over there and we don't have the right attitude. We don't, we don't feel like it's our job to help bring them where they need to be. Some of us look over there at that person and say, I can't believe they're not where I am. I can't believe that they don't have the understanding and the knowledge and, and the beliefs that I have. How dare they be over there? And we expect them to understand Scripture and understand God's will as if they had ever heard it. It's my job and it's your job to go over there and grab and, and help them patiently bring them to where they need to be. It's my job to go over there and help. You know what it's not my job to do? It's not my job to go over there with this and beat them over the head with it. Unfortunately, that's what happens in a lot of times, in a lot of places, with a lot of Christians. Sometimes we just need to know when it's time to make this a sword of the Spirit to fight the enemy. When we need to make this a first aid kit to help those who are barely holding on. Sometimes we have to make that distinction. You know what it's not my job to do? It's not my job to go over there and beat them while they're down. It's not my job to go over there and, and ensure that they'll never set foot in the Lord's church again because of how much of a jerk I was to them. That's not my job. That's not your job. 
unfortunately, many make it their job. Sometimes we need to be able to discern. We need to be able to take a step back and realize what this person needs. Go ahead, Brother John. To those listening online, uh, Brother John, he, he brought the point that the Philip, the evangelist, when he came across the Ethiopian eunuch, he helped him understand. He took him from where, from where he was and brought him to where he needed to be. You know what? Brother John Iverson raises his hand. Call on Brother John Iverson. Great point, brother. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's not our job to go over there and beat somebody up. Sometimes we need to be able to discern. You know, I'm afraid that, that un- unfortunately, unfortunately in today's church, there are Christians today who would, either, who, who would rather win an argument than win a soul. Sometimes there are Christians here today, here in this congregation, here on social media, who would rather win an argument with somebody than to win their soul. We can't expect the lost to have the same set of standards we have because they don't know what they should be living like. They haven't been taught any better. Turn to Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter. If you turn to Jude, and you look at verse 22... You're going to see a very powerful message. He says, And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but on others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Tonight, I have a question for you. Tonight, as you look at this passage in Jude, verse 22 and 23, do you make that distinction? Do you make the distinction in your life as you encounter other people around you of of whether this person needs to have compassion given to them? Whether this person needs to be snatched up out of hellfire? Do you make that distinction in your life or do you treat everybody the same? Jude says that some need to be saved with compassion. Not everyone needs to be saved with pulling them out of the fire. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, it says, For what I have, what, what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. What's he saying? What is Paul saying? The question I have for you tonight is, are you guilty of judging those who are outside? What does Paul mean by outside? He's saying 
those who are outside of the faith, those who are outside of the church, those who are outside of the faith, do you, what do you do in consuming yourself with, with judging them? You can't judge them at the same standard that you judge someone that's inside the church. But so many times we have Christians then and we have Christians today who spend their entire life judging those who are outside. Judging them to a standard they haven't put upon themselves in the first place. Are you guilty of that tonight? Paul says God's the one that's taking care of them. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, Paul says, this is the most powerful verse of our night. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 through 6, he says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. The time. He says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. Tonight the question is, do you walk in wisdom towards those who are outside? Do you walk with wisdom and discernment on how you speak to people who are outside? Do you make that distinction that you talked about? Do you make sure your speech is seasoned with grace before you interact with them? You know, Jesus, if you want an example, Jesus used a sword he was talking to the Pharisees. So Jesus used the first eight he was talking to the Samaritans. Tonight, maybe this illustration will help you understand a little bit more of why the Reformation movement matters. Maybe it'll help you see it in a new light that you never had. Imagine, if you will, that, that God made a big old jigsaw puzzle. I hate jigsaw puzzles. Zero patience to complete the jigsaw puzzle. But imagine, if you will, that God created a jigsaw puzzle. And he put this jigsaw puzzle together, and it was perfect. It was immaculate. It it was flawless. It was beautiful. It was the most beautiful picture, painting, image that had ever been made. And he placed it here on earth. you looked at it, it was undeniably marvel. Now I want you to imagine someone put it in a box and shook it up non-stop for a thousand years. Every now and then they throw in another peak, shake it up a little more. Here goes another hundred years, throwing in a couple more peaks and they shake it up. They shake that jigsaw puzzle up for a thousand years. What would happen to this once magnificent masterpiece? How much of the puzzle would still be in in its same place like God had made it? How much of the original image would still be recognizable? In our study of the Restoration Movement, the church because the church was that perfect jigsaw puzzle perfect and immaculate in every way perfectly placed and perfectly designed and for over a millennium 
Rome put a box over it and shook it up. If nothing else, when you look at the Reformation movement, I hope that you can look at it as a time where some of the pieces were put back in place. Not all of the pieces, not near as many of the pieces that needed to be put back in place, but some of the pieces were put back in the right place. Slowly but surely coming together again piece by piece. As the years went by, little foreign pieces that had been added were thrown back out. The puzzle was slowly being put back together again. Year by year, reformer by reformer, the jumbled box of pieces started to be recognizable at the end of our study tonight, as we're together, the puzzle is not back to its former glory completely. By any means, by the end of the Reformation movement, the puzzle still has pieces missing. But thank goodness the box stopped shaking. At least when we look at the Reformation movement, the box has, has stopped shaking in some respect and the little pieces can go back slowly but surely where they belong without the reformation movement there would have never been the restoration without the reformation there would have never been a restoration and so the puzzle is starting to make sense again now that the church has been reformed time to be restored. But that is to be. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the day that you blessed us with again to come together and to look back to the past and to see all that had to be done to bring us to where we are tonight. I pray that we can have grace within our hearts when it comes to those who have been misled, those who have been manipulated, those who have not been able to be completely thoroughly equipped because they've never had all the scriptures presented to them. Pray that we can be like Jesus and know when to make your word a sword and when to make it a first aid. Forgive us when we fail you and when we come up short. Help us to continue in the faith grounded and steadfast.